The following is a paid commercial program. Unless otherwise identified, the guests on the program are employees of or otherwise represent the advertiser. The opinions expressed therein are those of the advertiser and do not necessarily reflect the views and policies of Chorus Entertainment. Hey, hey, welcome to the Disability Law Show. Back once again. Good to have you here. Skulls and Tamar Agopian, Samfiru Tamarkin LLP is where you want to reach out to Tamar anytime, obviously to have a discussion on your own time. At length, uh, off air, of course, one 821 5900 You can reach out by phone, email, help at disabilityrights.ca. We've got a bunch of questions coming through, both email and the website, which is provided to you free of charge, of course, mydisabilityquestions.com. We'll get to some of those questions. And I know you have a, a couple things, at least uh, at least a good thing off the top to tomorrow to, to get, us, uh, get us rolling and warmed up here, pal. What do you got today? So I've actually been speaking to a couple of people where the issue is the same, John, and I want to feature this issue, and it's the issue of the insurance company sending them to one of their rehabilitation providers or service providers for so-called treatment, and what has that, that done to their overall health issues. So I'm going to feature one of the few calls that I've had that touched on this. Um, it was a woman who contacted me and she she's actually out of alberta as you know we practice across the country and alberta Mm -hmm. is one of those provinces and she worked for one of these you know regulatory government type positions um she's in her late 40s and you know she developed a series of issues where her doctor recommended that she should absolutely be off work Uh, but it had both a mental health and a physical component and it came from at the heels of her um, having uh, breast cancer, actually, sadly. But she was in remission and she was fighting it, but had these ongoing, uh, both the anxiety for recurrence and some depression around that, and then some physical issues that were lingering around the treatment, which is not uncommon for people who have cancer. So she had been approved and paid for a period of time. And then, of course, as insurance companies do, they get super impatient and they're approaching that two-year mark and they're looking for lots of different ways on how to get these kinds of people off claim and not try and approve them beyond that two-year point, which we know is is a really significant point in most of these disability claims. So in her situation, uh, they put her through one of these aggressive rehab programs. Okay. Um, and, and look, John, there's a bunch of different providers. Um, you know, these insurance companies use companies like Odyssey and Lifemark and CBI, I see them all, Uh, and I won't say which one it was in particular, um, but what ended up happening was it was a program that was set up for a very short period of time, I think it was like something like eight weeks, which in the grand scheme of things isn't very long, and she was required to attend multiple times a week uh, to do fairly aggressive physical therapies, and after about the fourth week, she realized that one of the treatments that were done in one of the sessions seemed to have um, re-triggered an issue that she had in her back. And so she wasn't sure what was going on. She went to her own doctor. Her doctor said, look, let's get some um, you know, x-rays and this kind of thing and figure out what's going on. And it turns out they actually caused a fracture in her body. Okay, so whatever treatment was being done aggressively by um, the insurance company's request with this company had actually fractured something. And it wasn't something that really was caused by anything else. She hadn't had any falls or any other issues. And so it's clear that there's a connection between the treatment that she was doing and actually Mm. worsening health issues. And the insurance company just wanted to throw it under the rug. They didn't want to acknowledge that their treatment and their requirement that she attend this rehab program Unless and if, and she was told John if she hadn't attended 
she would have been losing her LTD benefits. So of course, she puts herself into this, this treatment program and that program then leads her to have uh, a worse health uh, consequence. And they end up cutting her off a few months later anyway, um, saying that, look, she'd made sufficient progress in the plan and she should be back at work. The whole thing is ridiculous. We are gonna get involved, we're gonna get retained. We're gonna fight the insurance company on this. But I wanted to highlight that specific feature because I've also seen situations where the aggressive rehab has made worse, you know, even mental health conditions, you know, adding to the anxiety and the stress because these individuals have to now go and see someone that they have no relationship with, no connection with their own medical team, someone that's completely, you know, tied to the insurance company and forcing them to do either exercises or other therapy options that really don't align necessarily with what their regular treatment plan was. And this was the case with this woman. Her own physiotherapist said, look, I don't think you're ready for this aggressive rehab. Um, I don't think this is the right approach for you. And lo and behold, it absolutely wasn't and uh-huh. actually caused further injury. So this was a topic that we were actually talking about one of our recent team meetings. You know, we've got a team of lawyers at our firm and we often exchange ideas and thoughts about, look, what, you know, what are avenues here? What are, what are emerging trends? What are we seeing? And this is something we're really live to. And so the question becomes, you know, is there any kind of independent responsibility separate from the insurance company with these rehab providers, John, to meet a certain duty and standard of care? And what, you know, what responsibility do they have, even if they're being paid by the insurance company, to make sure that these individuals are safe and the treatment that they're providing aligns with their duties and obligations as therapists or, you know, physio people or doctors even, um, because they all have, you know, oaths that they, you know, put out there, much like lawyers, doctors have the same thing, and medical practitioners. And so if they're being offside from their standard of care for these individuals, I do think that's a problem, not only for the rehab provider, but especially the insurance company. And so that was the advice that I gave um, this woman that I spoke with. Her husband was on the call as well. And we sort of went through what it would require to sort of build a case this way and move that forward. But I do think the target, number one, is the insurance company for having forced her to go through this process and worsened her health issues and still ultimately cut off the claim doesn't make any sense and you know what folks if it doesn't make sense it's true you absolutely do have a basis for a legal claim and if this sounds familiar don't hesitate to reach out we'll talk it through and as we mentioned off the top you had to reach out to tamar and team is uh, really not difficult 1-855-821-5900 help at disabilityrights.ca simple right uh first email let's get it rolling uh kian writes since this guy's worked for years as a case manager for trauma specific claims Last year, after so much cumulative vicarious trauma, I hit a breaking point with the unexpected death of my mother and uh, my life and ability to work fell apart. I was diagnosed with depression, anxiety, and post-trauma stress. My GP initially wrote me off for two months, but then that turned into six months, and now, over a year... I've received short-term and still getting long-term disability benefits. I recently got a letter telling me there's a definition change under my policy that comes in after two years (laughs) at the two-year any occupation decision milestone and assuming that my psych restrictions remain in place along with my heart restrictions for the past 15 years. Can I then assume that LTD will ignore my psych restrictions or try to get around them with their own psych IME? Will they say, okay, you could go work at Tim Hortons counting spiders, whatever. Or is uh, there an obligation to return me to 60% of my pre-injury wage, which is about 110K? What do you guys think? Wow. 
Yeah. Really good email, Kian. Really good email. And this absolutely touches on what I was saying earlier about this two-year mark being so significant. So, John, let's start there. This is the time where insurance companies do want to weed out claims and get people off claim. They draft these insurance policies, right? They have their own team of lawyers who are writing the words, and the words absolutely favor the insurance company on this issue, and frankly, most issues. And so what it says is you get LTD benefits, usually for the first two years, if Kian can show that he cannot do his uh, case claims management, case management job. But after that two-year point in time, the test to continue to qualify for Kian for LTD changes and arguably becomes tougher to meet. It's one that's a higher standard in terms of saying that is there anything Kian can do, anything in the world for which he's got the minimum education training experience to do, but that also would pay him roughly what he's getting for his LTD benefit. And so it's no longer putting him back to his regular job, earning his full salary, which it sounds like was fairly significant, but it's now a reduced salary or threshold level, which we call the commensurate wage. Mm -hmm. And it's also looking at all sorts of different jobs that he could be qualified for. So Keen has, has hit the nail on the head, so to speak, John, in saying, well, look, is the insurance company just going to send me to a psych IME? rely on that independent, so-called independent medical examination from their own doctor and use that to cut off my claim saying I could go work at Tim Hortons. Um, it's not that simple actually and Keen, if that's the response you get from the insurance company, you absolutely should be challenging the decision. Uh, but they have to actually do a much more involved analysis. So yes, one part of it would to be to look to see what's happening with Keen from a health perspective and establish whether there are ongoing restrictions and limitations and whether those restrictions and limitations still prevent him from working. And it sounds like they are, in which case to me, that's the end of the analysis. But I know insurance companies, John, and they're not gonna stop there. So they're gonna look at the medical, but they're also going to look at what is uh, Kian's edu background, education, training, and what are the other types of jobs that would put him into a job that is commensurate. And so some policies say, yep, that's 60%. I think Kian put that in his email. Other policies say it's the LTD benefit level. And some policies don't even specify it at all. And so we have to look at what the courts have said, and it is roughly two-thirds of what someone was making. So I don't think Kian's going to be able to make two-thirds of his salary working at Tim Hortons. So no, if the insurance company says that's what you're going to go and do, that is not a reasonable analysis because it's not a reasonable um, basis upon which he could do alternative work. But it's the full picture, John, is what we have to look at in these in these situations. And very often we see adjusters making huge assumptions and leaps of faith in, in trying to close out these claims because they have a mission, right? Their goal is to try and do that. And so when there are these kinds of situations where people come to us quite often saying, hey, does this mean I've got to go do some other job? Please don't just accept what the insurance company is saying to you. We often see mistakes being made along the way or assumptions that are incorrect. And when those assumptions are wrong, John, it is up to the insurance company legally to show that there's something else Kian can do that would in fact put him in a job that would allow him to earn two thirds of his salary. So there's lots of elements there, but an important email and I appreciate it so that it allows us an opportunity to talk about something that we see quite often. 
Keen, appreciate that note, and we'll take a short break here and move on to more. We're going to flip over to MyDisabilityQuestions.com. That's another website that's free for you to use, and it's got a, a searchable database, so maybe your question, something similar, has been asked uh, in the past. If not, leave it there, and we might get up on a, uh, another show in the near future. That's on the way, and reach out to tomorrow, as mentioned, one 855 821 Help at We'll continue with more of the Disability Law Show. Hang on. You're listening to a paid commercial program. Unless otherwise identified, guests on the program are employees of or otherwise represent the advertiser. The opinions expressed therein are those of the advertiser and do not necessarily reflect the views and policies of Chorus Entertainment. All right, we're back. Disability Law Show. Tamar is here to answer your questions off air as well. Anytime. Great team behind her. Always ready to have that simple chat. Won't cost you any. Just pick up a phone and say hi, right? Begin uh, begin that way. one 855 821-5900, help at disabilityrights.ca. That's the email. And I didn't mention this website. It was built just for you to ask your questions anonymously uh, as well. MyDisabilityQuestions.com. Here is one from it. Short one tomorrow says, can an insurance company cut off your LTD benefits without notice? It's more like when. <laughs> well, yes, there is an inevitability to it, John, for sure. Uh, but more to the point of this question, and it's a good one, is, you know, can, can they just cut you off without telling you? And, and generally, no. They, they will actually tell you in advance that they're going to cut, cut you off or they're going to stop your payments. But I think what you want is something in writing to that effect and an explanation, right? And so it can't just be that all of a sudden you stop getting your LTD benefits. If you do, you know there's a problem uh, because most insurers are pretty good about, um, you know, covering themselves off i'm going to put it nicely uh it, when they cut off these kinds of claims so generally what they'll do is they'll issue a letter it's usually two or three pages and then they'll give you a call and they'll give you sort of a uh, very uh relaxed way of saying hey by the way we're cutting you off i say relaxed because um you know i see i hear from people john when they call us and they say yeah you know i just got that call and I tried to ask them questions and they really didn't have answers for me. They kept just going back and saying, yeah, but you're cut off, but oh yeah, but you're cut off without really giving people any sort of real explanation. And so I, I hear that a lot and I do think it's true because a lot of these adjusters just don't, they're just robots, right? I mean, they're doing what they're required to do. Insurance company gives them like their mandate and this is what they have to do. And they get, they're given a script and they try and stick to the huh. script. And so it's really awful, but I think for that reason, along with a whole host of them, if you don't understand what's happening with your insurance company or what they're saying to you, please don't hesitate to reach out and talk to us about your situation. You know, we really do commit to trying to provide as much information to people about their rights as possible. This radio show, of course, we do lots of TV and we have free consults, absolutely free. You can talk to any one of us about what's happening. And so I have seen instances where, and there's no charge by the way, um, and so I have seen instances where people are like, yeah, you know, I, I got this letter. I don't really understand it. Um, can you explain it to me tomorrow? I said, yeah, I'm more than happy to, you know, things like technical declines, John, like pre-existing condition, you know, this isn't, these aren't words that are used that are friendly for people. What people can understand what that technical language is. And that's what we're here for. And of course, we've got great resources on uh, one of our websites, LTDFAQ. Um, .ca, there's one memo that just has all the words and definitions to all the words that insurance companies use. Uh, but more to the point, no, they're not supposed to just cut off your benefits and not explain to you what's happening. And then you want to make sure that you're taking some positive steps on what to do in that situation. 
Uh, and I think, you know, this leads us really nicely to probably talk about appeals because that's one of the things that, you know, these adjusters will suggest to claimants once they cut them off. And so what is this process? It's not, you're not going to see it in your insurance policy, folks. It's nope. something that's conceived of by these insurers. Um, it's a process where they're inviting you to provide them with more proof, more evidence, more information to justify that you still qualify for LTD under the policy. Uh, but what it's really doing is that it's affording the insurance company, the same adjuster usually, by the way, to have another crack at it and basically say no most of the time. And I think that what I don't like about the process is that they don't actually tell people that they have another avenue. They can absolutely hire a lawyer and fight the insurance company. And they don't have to waste time appealing in order to do that. Um, that is something that people, I think, get led to do, thinking that that's the right approach and it's going to make their claim better or it's going to make their case better. It doesn't. It absolutely doesn't. All it does is that it lose, you lose time where you don't have your benefits and you're not putting into action something that you can do positively to get the claim resolved. Um, I say this a lot, John, but it's, it's absolutely true that there are times where we are able to settle these claims for our claimants in a matter of months way sooner than having to go through the whole process with the disability insurer with their appeals. Because once you appeal, and you're most likely going to be denied again, they're just going to offer it, you should appeal again. And that process can go two or three or four times uh, before they say, okay, quote unquote, we've made our final decision. Well, what does that even mean, John? Yeah. I mean, you know, people have a right to their benefits from the moment the insurance company has made the wrong decision. If someone's doctor is saying you cannot work and the insurance company is saying, no, we think you can, or we think there's something else you could do, well, then there's a disconnect there. And that disconnect gives people the right to fight the insurance company. Now, look, I get it. It's overwhelming. People don't know where to start. And so I hope that they start with having a conversation with one of us and then we will hold your hand through the process. I promise you. I'm not just going to have some relaxed conversation with you like the adjuster saying, oh, yeah, we're cutting you off and, you know, you can appeal. No, I'm going to take you through all the details. I'm going to explain to you exactly what's going to happen and then I'm going to take care of it. And I'm going to fight for people to get what's owed to them. And I think that's the part of this um, that really bothers me is that they put a lot of words in these letters, John. People who oftentimes don't have necessarily the, the cognitive ability, the memory function, the thinking process, you know, they're dealing with significant health issues. And now you're sending them a two or three page letter full of words that have lots of legal terms in it and without really much explanation about what they mean. And so how are people supposed to then assert their legal rights? And I think that's really why I'm so committed to this process, because I think it's important for people to know that they have other options and the insurance company isn't always going to tell you what those are. Good note. Appreciate that sending along again. That was uh, mydisabilityquestions.com. Back over to email tomorrow for our next one. It says, hello, my name is GB, and I have unanswered questions regarding my employer and LTD. I've been cut off my benefits and denied LTD. I was denied LTD through the insurer for the second time, dating back to January 5th, 2022. I'm employed with a hospital in North Vancouver and a member of a union since 2007. Went off work in December 2020 when I was injured working a night shift. I fell on both wrists. 
other work-related injuries have been brought to the surface since, uh, since, like left shoulder and neck issues, right shoulder issues, and lumbar back area pain problems. I was sent for a functional capacity evaluation by the insurance company. The medical evaluation has confirmed that I am completely unemployable. If you are able to help with my query, I would really appreciate that. I can then just uh, put it to rest. Just want to know whether I should follow through uh, with having my LTD accepted. What do you think, Tamar? Well, yes, GB. Yes, you do not let this go. <laughs> uh, yeah. the, the follow through is to challenge the insurer. Okay, there's, there's no question in my mind. This really ties in quite nicely with what I was just talking about. Um, just because your disability claim arises out of an incident that's happened in your work situation, it doesn't mean that you're not entitled to LDD. Okay, so that's where I want to start is that if you are injured at work, yes, most employers have workers' compensation type claims. In BC, it's called WorkSafe. Alberta, it's WorkSafe. In Ontario, it's it's workers' compensation or WSIB. But it doesn't mean it gives the LTD insurer a pass. So most people in these kinds of environments, John, when they're working, they also have access to short-term and long-term disability benefits. And so I always recommend right from the start, you want to start the process for all of these claims. Go down the road of workers' compensation or WorkSafe, as well as pursuing short-term and long-term disability because you really don't know where it's going to go. You don't know really for sure whether you're going to recover and find yourself in a situation where hopefully you're back at work. But as GB describes, um, you know, they have been sent to a fact functional uh, capacity evaluation that says that they are unemployable. That tells me that they're going to be left with having to rely on these other sources of income, these benefits that are available through workers' compensation and long-term disability in order to keep, you know, the lights on, right, and keep bills being paid and so on and so forth. And so I would absolutely not let this go if the long-term disability insurer is saying, you know, no, right, and and they are saying no. That's the first thing that was described to us is that, you know, that the second denial was January 2022. So now I'm starting to worry about when was the first denial? Why is that important, John? is it's because the current state of the law says that you have only two years to start a legal claim from when you were first denied insurance benefits from the insurance company. So regardless of what's happening with the WorkSafe or workers' compensation claim, because that's totally different, that's they have their own tribunal, their own um, rules and regs. I'm just talking about long-term disability. The moment you are denied is when the clock starts to run. That's why the insurance companies like the whole appeal process, because it runs down that time. And so it's extremely important for GB to make sure that that legal right is asserted soon, very soon. I suspect the legal um, claim time period, that two years probably expires sometime maybe later this year in 2023, if the denial was first communicated in 2021. So that's really, really important with limitation periods. and then. One of the other things to be aware of is that insurance companies do try and take credit or get a deduction for these other sources of income that you mm -hmm. might have yeah. access to. So this is the other thing, is that long-term disability, when they draft these policies, they will include a section that says, hey, we'll pay you X. Let's say it's usually two-thirds of what you were making. But if you get workers' compensation benefits or CPP disability benefits or other sources of income, we're going to reduce what we're actually paying you for LTD. Look, 
I get frustrated with offsets and deductions, John, because sometimes insurers are really aggressive about these kinds of deductions and they're punching above their weight and they're not always entitled <laughs> to all the things that they're trying to do, which is to save themselves money at the end of the day. But it doesn't mean then that if you're in a situation like GB, that you either give LTD a pass or workers' compensation a pass. They should both be paying in a scenario like that, generally speaking. Even if the workers' compensation amount potentially is a little bit higher than LTD, they both have an obligation to pay. So from where I'm sitting, I think there's absolutely a valid basis for an LTD claim in a situation like this, one that needs to be moved forward fairly quickly. And then, you know, the workers' comp side can, can exist sort of at the same time, and the medical information can be shared for both claims. Now, we don't do the workers' compensation stuff, John. That's one other thing I want to get across to our yep. listeners. But we have great people we can refer those kinds of claims to. We work in partnership with them. Uh, but the key, really, in my mind, given the timing, is to get going on that long-term disability claim. And I would not let that go in what has been described when you've got an assessment that says you cannot work. How big a factor is the union thing, or is it not at all? Because I know we mentioned that in there as well. No, good good catch there. Yeah, the union oh. thing is is a factor, uh, but it's one that generally I find is not as big a factor as I think most people feel it should be. Or some, okay. I mean, I've heard others say that union factor can be a big one. Let's talk about that just for a second. Some people who are unionized, um, and, and you'll have a collective agreement uh, that says, you know, these are your rights and obligations as an employee, as part of this union. And some of those collective agreements will say, if you've got a dispute for long-term or short-term, you've got to take that up through the union. But very few collective agreements actually say that, John. And in fact, there's a bunch of law in Ontario that puts people in different buckets, and a couple of buckets are gray buckets, and in those situations, we've also been able to help people who are unionized. So let's not make the union status a barrier. Just come to us. We will look at the collective agreement, and we will give you a straight-up answer as to whether it's an issue or not. And if it is an issue, we also have some ways and strategies in terms of trying to get around that and still be able to assist people within a legal claim, as opposed to asking the union, hey, can you do agreements? And that's going to take five years. And some unions don't even know what they're doing in situations like this. So best that you get some advice from us, and then we can direct you properly as to what to do in terms of next steps. And we'll take a short break. Get to more of your emails and questions through mydisabilityquestions.com. The email address is help at disabilityrights.ca. And that phone number when we're not doing the show, use it anytime, one 855 900. We continue with more of the Disability Law Show. Hang on. You're listening to a paid commercial program. Unless otherwise identified, guests on the program are employees of or otherwise represent the advertiser. The opinions expressed therein are those of the advertiser and do not necessarily reflect the views and policies of Chorus Entertainment. You bet. We're back. More of the Disability Law Show to go. You want to reach out to Tamar and uh, Gopian and her team anytime. Always ready to have that chat with you because it is uh, it's a confusing topic for sure if you're trying to go it alone or if you're just dealing with a one-sided insurance company. So get the other side on your side. That's Tamar and her team. one 821 5900 if only for a chat. And help at disability. Rights.ca. Question for you coming through here. Tamar says, uh, yeah. Tamar, if an employee's LTD benefits are cut off, what would an employer typically do in that situation? Hmm. So, this is an interesting one, John, because there's no hard and fast answer, right? Some employers do one thing and other do employers do another. So I'm going to give a very frustrating lawyer answer and try and cover off all the bases, okay? <laughs> and so um, generally speaking, once your LTD benefits are cut off, the insurance company will actually send a version of that denial letter to your employer. 
why do I say aversion is because the insurance company is actually not supposed to share your medical information with your employer. So if they've provided a detailed explanation as to why they think you're capable of working and they're going to deny your claim, those references and that explanation medically cannot be shared with your employer. So they'll sort of do an abridged version or a redacted version of the denial letter and they'll send that over. Most, most insurers will do that. So once the employer has that letter, typically one of three things happens. One, nothing. Some employers do nothing with it, John. Um, they just assume that the individual is going to assert their rights or that they will contact their employer if they're going to come back to work. Other employers will actually start the return to work process, which is mostly what we see. And that generally involves them contacting the employee, the claimant, and saying, okay, so we've received this denial letter, insurers saying you're capable of working, when are you coming back to work? What does that look like? And in that process, usually there's some discussion around accommodation. So I'll get back to that in a second. And then the third thing that may happen is some people actually get terminated, John, would you believe? <laughs> so once their long-term disability gets cut off, I have seen in instances where employers get super aggressive and say, well, look, um, we don't agree with the insurer or we don't think you're coming back to your own occupation, let's say if the own occupation has been fully paid, and so we're just gonna terminate you, here's a severance package. So if that were to happen, please, please do not accept what the employer is saying. This is why we specialize not only in disability law, but also in employment law. For exactly these situations, John, is that there can be overlap. And myself and there's some other members of my team who are fabulous who also do both areas of our practice, both in employment and disability, where there's this kind of intersection. Because you want to have a clear idea, okay, what do I do first? Do I fight the insurance company? Do I dispute the employer? Like, what compensation am I entitled to? Where do I go? Because if an employer has actually terminated you at the heels of a medical leave, that is a problem for the employer. That can bring rise to a human rights issue. I mean, if, if we can establish that there's potentially discrimination against someone as a result of their health status or their disability, and that informed the employer's decision to terminate you, that's a massive problem for the employer. And it can equate to dollars. Doesn't necessarily mean you get your job back, but certainly means that there's some compensation associated with that. So I do think that it's absolutely critical for people to get the right advice, and they should be in a situation like that, getting advice both on their disability claim and their employment claim. I wanted to just go back to the accommodations piece, though. Okay. And so this also highlights, so I was sort of saying, you know, one of the three things that could happen, and one, one of them is this process around an individual working with their employer about getting back to work. And I think what's important there, and the only thing I really wanted to comment on was, you know, you want to have up-to-date medical information, okay? And that up-to-date medical information, really, that guidance from your own doctor is critical in terms of deciding, am I going to fight the insurer for more benefits? Am I actually able to work? Is it, in fact, the case that it's correct that my LTD benefits have ended? Or is it that... You know, I can try a gradual, gradual return to work or I need some accommodation and that's the process I'm going to go down. And it can sometimes be really difficult for people to navigate. And so the starting point is really getting clear advice from your own doctor about what you should do before you engage either the insurer or your employer about whether or not you're going to get it back to work. 
And with that, let's get on to Isha, says, guys, I'm on long-term disability for depression for over three years now. My question is, if and when I'm ready to work, do I have to go back to my old workplace or can I start a new job, new company? I work for one of the national banks and I don't want to go back there to work. <laughs> I don't blame you, Isha. But um, look, I, uh, I think that the easy answer here is that you shouldn't feel that you're stuck. Right, so if you don't want to go back to a certain work setting, that's absolutely fine, especially if the work setting is what caused the medical leave, right, John? We see that a lot uh. where, you know, the work setting triggers some mental health issues and then it puts people off for a number of years, which it could be in Isha's situation. So what are her choices then? Well, look, you could choose to not return back to your employer, but you also want to think carefully around whether you're leaving any money on the table in a situation like that, right? So. Is there potentially an employment claim with your um, current employer? What does that do with your health benefits, for example? And you know that's sort of separate and apart than the LTD assessment, right? So you don't have to go back to your old workplace, but you want to understand what that would do with your continued entitlements. So one of the things that people may not appreciate is that the return to work piece of a disability policy, and, and they have them, right? These policies talk about you know, rehabilitation and return to work and even recurrence claims, sometimes those words are tied to the current or existing employer. So in Isha's situation, I'd want to see what her policy says so that we can give her solid advice on, look, if you do start with a new employer, does that potentially close the door on a recurrence claim of her health issues under the existing plan and the existing employer. That's something she should know when she's making that decision to change employers. Um, because if your health issues you know, come back again, John, if she is prevented again by virtue of her depression from working, then she should be entitled to more long-term disability benefits, especially after she's been off for so long. You know, There could be a likelihood of a recurrence. And so you don't want to be compromising your rights for further LTD by choosing to go with a different employer. So that's one of the biggest considerations there. And then the other one, of course, as I said, is are there employment rights and some compensation around the existing employer you know before you up and quit or resign you want to explore with an employment lawyer whether or not there's an avenue there for further compensation we'll take a uh, short break we got lots more to go here some more questions uh, you can if, if yours doesn't appear on this show maybe on a future one as well and it'll always get uh, answered anyway that email address is help at disabilityrights.ca and the phone number to reach out to tomorrow when we're done one 855 we'll continue this is the disability law show you're listening to a paid commercial program unless otherwise identified guests on the program are employees of or otherwise represent the advertiser the opinions expressed therein are those of the advertiser and do not necessarily reflect the views and policies of chorus entertainment all right welcome back disability law show one of the many different ways you can reach out to tomorrow and her team is my disability that's where i want to take it right now tomorrow says guys uh, am i permitted to read or receive copies of the medical reports written by the insurance company's doctor that's an awesome question it is an awesome question and the answer to that should be a firm yes but you will get the dodge folks you're going to get the dodge <laughs> from the adjuster okay um so Insurance companies, for reasons that I really cannot understand, John, they often don't want to release medical information to the claimant, especially medical information that they generated. So, for example, we talked earlier in the show about an IME. What is that? It's an independent medical exa- examination. 
or, or assessment and they the insurance company will arrange this they will have the claimant assessed by one of their own doctors and that assessment can be a few hours it could take a couple of days depending on the nature of the assessment but the key at the end of that is that there's going to be a report generated several pages sometimes 10 12 15 pages report out of that assessment that goes to the insurance company the adjuster will get a copy of that report and the claimant will not so imagine you've now gone through a half a day day two days worth of an assessment um, you're obviously aware of the fact that there's specific questions that are going to be asked of this doctor to comment on how you're doing, what your health is, you know, are you able to work? And yet the insurance company doesn't want you to see that report or the answers that were provided by the doctor. And I have a real hard time with this. Um, and so, look, you're entitled to it. You should ask your adjuster for it. The adjuster will often say, well, we, we're not permitted to release it to you, but we'll release it to your doctor. Okay release it to your doctor and then get it from your doctor, okay? You are entitled to your own medical information. And the reason why it's so critical is because if there are um, opinions or diagnosis or something in that report that's not correct, if there's assumptions made in that report that are not correct, but the insurance company relies on it to cut off your claim down the road, then by all means, you should absolutely be ready to make those corrections, highlight any mistakes, um, get your doctor to prepare a rebuttal or respond to it because you will want to build that claim in order to challenge the insurance company for further LTD. So if they're going to rely on these kinds of reports, then absolutely you should get your hands on them, you're entitled to them, but you will get the doctor from the adjuster. And so there are ways around it. And the key way, the easiest way, John, is to actually get your doctor to get a copy and then get a copy from your own doctor and see what it says. We hope that helped. We'll move on to another email with our, uh, our uh, remaining minutes here. Courtney this time around says, Hi, guys. I'm a nurse applying for long-term disability. I have vestibular dysfunction causing frequent falls, chronic severe migraines, and recently diagnosed with fibromyalgia and chronic fatigue. I've done three rounds of physio. I see a chiropractor and osteopath regularly. I've developed anxiety and depression. As I haven't had any improvement for one year, I see my psychotherapist in hopes to learn coping strategies. I've seen a neurologist, rheumatologist, ENT, and my GP. I fear many of my symptoms are subjective, although I've had an MRI, CT, x-rays, all been negative. Do I have any chance of being approved? What can I do to improve my chances? This is all due to a virus I had in July of 2022. I developed vestibular neuritis and the rest of the symptoms compounded. Wow. Uh, thanks for any insights, says Courtney. Yeah, well is right, John. I, I, you know, I got to start by saying I give her so much credit for going down the path of getting all of these um, treatment measures and testing done and really being committed to her health and improvement of her health because she's right that the symptoms that she has and the conditions that she has are all subjective. What does that mean? It means that they are just based on reporting that Courtney does to her own doctors about what she's experiencing, what she's feeling. Things like fatigue and you know mental health conditions and so on, fibromyalgia all very consistent with those kinds of claims and what she's probably getting the sense of which we do talk quite a bit about is that these subjective claims actually get resisted by disability insurers quite a bit because they are not things that can be seen or tested in a CT scan or an x-ray or an MRI but they are absolutely valid disability claims Courtney should 100% pursue her entitlements to LTD because I suspect all of these health issues are preventing her from working. 
and that is really the core of it. Just because you have subjective symptoms, just because you've got a constellation of health issues, which is another word that I use, so a combination of things, a little bit of this and a little bit of that, if altogether they create a profile for Courtney that prevents her from working, then LTD should be stepping up and paying the disability benefits. But adjusters don't really understand these kinds of nuanced type disability claims, John. Like I said, they're very routine oriented. They're given a certain mandate. Um, they've typically no medical background whatsoever. Most of them will just kind of use a Google-based um, program to like plunk in, you know, vestibular neuritis recovery, right? And if it says you should be good in three weeks, that's what they're going to say to Courtney. You should be good in three weeks. You don't meet, um, you know, the the elimination period or the qualifying period for LTD, let's say. But the problem there is, is that she actually does have a number of different specialists that have seen her, have reviewed her conditions, have validated those symptoms, and they all should be part of the profile for her getting approved for disability benefits. And so I think that in a situation like this, advocating for your health, making sure that you are seeing these different treatment providers, extremely important for management of these types of issues, but also from that will flow the medical support that she needs. So. You know, Courtney, you should absolutely be getting, you know, brief reports or records delivered from the chiropractor, the osteopath, the psychotherapist, the family, all of those doctors. If it's not all contained in the family doctor's records, then I would get gather all of that and send all of that over to the adjuster for consideration. Look. What they may do as a starting point is get uh, a paper review. So one of the right. doctors, right, that they've paid for will just look at the paper. They won't talk to Courtney. They're not going to talk to any of her doctors, but they'll look at the paper. And they may make some conclusions out of that as to whether or not she meets the test of total disability. But even in the words that I've described, John, the paper is not the paper review that the insurance company does. The courts have already said that they're not going to consider that. They don't weight that as strongly as they would Courtney's own doctor's opinions about her capacity and her ability to work. So knowing all of that, I absolutely would continue to pursue this, Courtney. And if you have any issues along the way, any questions, please don't hesitate to contact us. Absolutely free consultation. Happy to talk you through all of this and just talk through some options if you're getting some resistance from the insurer. I like that when they just kind of review your documentation without seeing your GP or talking to the uh, the client. I don't know how that, that ever holds water in a it courtroom. It does not. Right. It does not, John. <laughs> and the courts have said it time and again, and this is why people need to know that the, the law is typically on their side in situations like this, even with subjectively based disability claims. And with that, guys, we'll, uh, we'll wrap it up for another week. Lots of good email, really good stuff this week. Thank you so much for reaching out. You can continue to do so for uh, you know correspondence with Tamar and her team. But, of course, it may appear on a, a future show as well. So keep them coming. Help at disabilityrights.ca. Again, email is help at disabilityrights.ca. We also referred several times to mydisabilityquestions.com. That's a beauty because it's free, it's anonymous, and it's searchable as well. And then always, if you want to leapfrog all that, go right for a phone call to Tamar and her team. You can do so. You're welcome to do so. one 821 5900 And we'll catch you next time right here on the Disability Law Show. The preceding was a paid commercial program. Unless otherwise identified, the guests on the program are employees of or otherwise represent the advertiser. The opinions expressed therein are those of the advertiser and do not necessarily reflect the views and policies of Chorus Entertainment.